There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Ray Scott. Ray Scott was a six foot nine inch forward and center who played his college basketball at the University of Portland before he was the number four overall pick in the 1961 National Basketball Association draft, chosen by the Detroit Pistons. Ray Scott had an 11 year career in the NBA and American Basketball Association with the Pistons, Baltimore Bullets, and Virginia Squires. He went on to become an NBA coach and was the first black man ever to be named as the league's coach of the year. He's also the author of a riveting book, The NBA in Black and White the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach. Ray Scott, welcome to Next Steps Forward. So great to be here. So great to be on the steps. Uh, great to have you here. And, you know, we have a lot of fun this show. We've had some great guests, and I'm very blessed to have guests. And I got to tell you, after our conversation last week, I've really been looking forward to today. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, my friend. It's so good to be here. I, I've been excited as you. Um, I don't know what happened last week. We we spoke and I, of course, I looked on Amazon to see how our book was doing and we went up in the ratings. I think at Kindle, we went to 19 and at, with the book, we were like 46. And I take that very seriously. I'm, I'm a competitor and I'm looking at Muggsy Bogues and Phil Jackson and John Thompson and all of these great books. And I'm rated in these books and I, I have to tell you, after speaking with you last week, and I, I just kind of said, go in there and look at it. <laughs> Man, it, it, it made me feel so good. Well, I'd like to take credit for it, but maybe we can after this week. Uh, so you're 19 and 46. Let's see if we can get to the top 10 in both of those. And we're going to really dig into that because uh, it's, it's a terrific book. Um, and before I forget, I'll give you a chance now and later. Where can folks find your book, The NBA in Black and White? I gave some of it away uh, with the Amazon. <clears throat> what I like about Amazon, Chris, is, you know, with their promotions, you can order a book one day and get it in the mail the next day. And they're, they're doing exemplary stuff. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble for bookstores. But they said you can order it at any bookstore and they will get it shipped to you right away. Uh, but we do Target. They did Walmart. Uh, so I've been excited about the exposure, but the feedback has, has been great. I mean, I've just had friends all around the country that have called me and said, we read the book or they put on Facebook and said they read the book and it's exciting. Um, and I, and I talked to my son today, both of my boys, they, they say it's exciting. They like the book. Uh, and that's, you know, I was looking for the critical areas, you know, give me some criticism. And they said, no, no, dad, that's not really where we are with it, because what you're trying to do, it's not instructive, it's historical. Exactly. And so you can't change history. There's no questions about history. History is what it is. And so I've enjoyed it from that perspective, the feedback that has come back. It is, as as like I said, with yours last week when we spoke, 
that's just it's such good stuff thank you no again my pleasure my honor and to that point let's dig right in and give our listeners some real meat on the bone here to sink their teeth into about the book i mentioned your career earlier and it was such an amazing career during such a momentous time of change in our country's history honestly it's hard to know where to start but something that really touched me deeply early in your book the nba in black and white was a description of a trip you took and then your reaction to the brutal murder of a Chicago child in Mississippi. In your book, you wrote, my personal awakening came as a 12-year-old while my uncle took my brother and me on a trip to Washington, D.C. I saw the care he had to take to only drive along, quote, safe highways and only stop at, quote, safe gas stations. We were driving deeper into the South. After all, we were no longer in friendly Philadelphia. And now, in our nation's capital, I was disturbed to see, quote, colored-only water fountains. Four years later, when I was 16, and, I, and the horrible details of a 14-year-old Emmett Till's murder became public, I was stunned to realize that this could happen to me too, and to any one of my friends. Like too many other children of color, I might have succumbed to the stress of this overwhelming reality of African-American life if it had not been for the loving presence of a father, actually my stepfather, end quote. How did those experiences affect you then, shape who you became, and remain with you today some 70 plus years later? I think the factor for me, as you were even reciting those words from your feelings and what you were seeing that I must have been looking at as a child, um, I have to say, Chris, that the feeling never leaves you. Uh, That's what I found so astounding about Emmett Till. Now, there was Medgar Evers. Dr. King, the Kennedy brothers, there were all of these assassinations that were taking place during that time in the 60s, which were, as, as we would say, tumultuous. But what I always look, I look at tumultuous in that time in the 60s, because that was the era of JFK. And if ever we needed a man to come as a leader with a positive message, it was 1960. And up steps this Catholic kid. We've never had a Catholic president. Up steps this Catholic kid, and he talks about, of all things, of all things, including the Negro brethren in the march forward in American history. No one ever heard of anything like that. So he says that in 1960. And in 1961, I'm drafted into the NBA, which for a while had been a segregated league. And it certainly wasn't uh, uh, a glory trail by any means. But this president spoke out. And I thought when he spoke to it, even then, I said, oh, I got a chance. I got a chance to play in the NBA. Because that's not a dream as African-American kids that we grew up with. We didn't dream of playing in the NBA. That was not something that was reality. The reality for us was the Harlem Globetrotters. And so for us to then say the NBA, and then you see a Bill Russell, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robertson, and Wilt Chamberlain. And they became the cornerstones of the NBA. But the men that put it forward and I would be remiss if I didn't bring their names up, was Earl Lloyd, who went to Washington, 
Sweetwater Clifton, who had a contract buyout from the Globetrotters to sign with the New York Knickerbockers, and the All-American from Duquesne, Chuck Cooper. These three men were the first African-Americans you saw on the basketball floor in America in an integrated situation professionally. And remember, the NBA is built on All-Americans. All of the schools, all of the colleges had this this, uh, All-American plume over their heads. So when they came out, cities were saying, which All-American are we going to get? You know, we're going to get a guy from Illinois, from UCLA, from Duquesne, from St. John's. Who are we going to get? And I always remember the Detroit Pistons with that, Chris, because the Detroit Pistons looked up and said, we got a guy from the Eastern League by the name of Ray Scott. <laughs> and who? who? Yeah, who? And, <laughs> and that's exactly, that was my reception to Detroit. When I came here, I said, my first name became who? Who raised that? Who's that? <laughs> so, because they didn't get that All-American. But I like to think that I proved myself. And I like to think that Oscar and Wilt and Elgin uh, and, and, and uh, Russell had laid down a foundation. And the Earl Lloyds and the Chuck Coopers and the uh, Sweetwater Cliftons, they laid down a foundation coming in the 50s and I have to add another name, Maury Stokes from St. Francis of Pennsylvania. They laid down that foundation where we as kids, when we were coming out of college, we had a place to go. And it didn't, we didn't all have to go as African-American kids to the Harlem Globetrotters. We were now going into the NBA. But in my opinion, what buttressed that was John Fitzgerald Kennedy saying that he wanted to see us join in where this country was going as a future. Ergo, the 60s. And when you think about the 60s, the ground was moving underneath us. Civil rights, voting rights, Vietnam War, all within 10 years, all of these things happening, all of these assassinations. And think of us being kids as 22-year-olds living in this world, growing up in front of a public. Now, again, the NBA was not a televised sport. It was a spectator sport. So if you wanted to see these guys, you had to go to the games. If you wanted to know who we were, you had to read the newspapers. So that was that era we were growing up in with the changes in clothing, the changes in music, you know, uh, I mean, I'm remembering the Mamas and the Papas and James Brown and all of this, uh, Richie Havens, all this great music and messages. And I'm re- remembering the high heel shoes and the hip huggers and the dashikis and the big afros. This whole changing society that was a pronouncement of freedom, unity, and moving together as a country. And I thought we had that for 20 years, from 1960 until 1980. And I I am still so proud to be representative of that era and have been part of growing up in that era. One thing that we didn't talk about last week, but you mentioned it just a few times here, was the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm -hmm. 
and I guess I didn't, you know, I grew up watching them. I'm a product of the seventies and just kind of didn't think about it, but you mentioned them in the sixties. I took my son and youngest daughter a couple of years ago up the road in Bridgeport, Connecticut to see them play probably two years ago, before pre COVID mm-hmm. 60 years later, they're still going strong. Mm-hmm. What's the significance of that, the brand I'll call the franchise for African-Americans, for basketball, for culture. I mean, 60 years plus, and they're going strong, and it's fantastic. You know the great thing about the Harlem Globetrotters, and you can tell your daughter this, they're not from Harlem. (laughs) They're from Chicago. And a guy named Abe Saperstein started that. He got that group, and he marketed them and got them going. But the Harlem Globetrotters were a powerful organization, if you think about it, because all of the great basketball players of the era went through them. You go to college and you're outstanding or you go to an African-American school or in those days they were called black schools. You go to the black school and then you go to the Globetrotters. So another outstanding player, another outstanding player. And a lot of people don't know historically, the number one team in the nation at that time was the Minneapolis Lakers with George Mikan, Jim Pollard, uh, Vern Mickelson, Slater Martin, Whitey School, this great team. The Harlem Globetrotters defeated them in the world or the, yeah, I think the world games or the country game, the United States game, they defeated them. And that it, it embellished the standards of the Globetrotters, but it did not the acceptance. However, the guy that walk through that door was, again, Sweetwater Clifton because he had played so great against the icon, George Mikan, he wound up with a contract with the, with the New York Knickerbockers in the NBA. And the NBA has never missed a turn with promotion, marketing, and bringing people in. And I always attributed that to the fact that they sat around the table and figured stuff out. And I've always enjoyed that. And maybe it was because they were New Yorkers or what have you, but they always managed to sit down. But they figured out that the Harlem Grove Trotters had value and that people would not leave the stadium to see them. They would come to the stadium to see them. So what you treated your daughter to, and I say this uh, in, in complete honesty, you treated her to a very strong side of American history when you took her to a Globetrotter game because nothing has changed. That that uh, basketball eloquence has that they had has it still permeates America. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with Meadowlark Lemon and just thinking about the stuff they were doing in Bridgeport a few years ago, just you know, throwing from up in the stands and bouncing a center corner goes in. I'm like, how the hell did you do that? And they did it three times in a row. That's right. I can do that three times in my life. Uh, right. I mean, it, it was, you know, and so you talk about Metalog. Yeah, we call, I call him Metalog Grapefruit. Uh, <laughs> he was just a tremendous man uh, with a wonderful heart. I enjoyed uh, competing with him. And I got to compete against him because he was a, a Wilt Chamberlain devotee. He loved Wilt. Um, but I got to see Metalog, but see the history of the Globetrotters was not the, the before there was Metalark, there was Goose Tatum. And Goose Tatum is the guy that, you know, he was up there. Uh, the Marcus Haynes up there, you know, uh, uh, 
Sweetwater Clifton, Josh Grider, uh, Tex Wilson, these great players that you never heard of because they go from African-American school to being a globetrotter. And so, a lot of those guys, they would have helped the growth, in my opinion, in the, of the NBA. But the NBA said, we're not going to have the help of that growth for only three years because 1947, they were segregated. 1950, three years later, they were integrated. And you can't name any sport that integrated as quickly as the, as the NBA. And again, I, I think it's that quotient that they had to sit down at the table and figure things out. And I wish with so much that we did that in America, that we sat down with each other at the table. And we shouldn't be working on what made us different. We should be working on what makes us included, what makes us better. And that's what I wrote the book with the feelings in mind of I, I didn't want to be angry. This book was not written by the uh, angry black kid from the 50s and 60s. No, I recognized what I was given and I recognized what my parents put into me and I recognized the education that I was availed. And I want to give a, a consistency to that, the opportunity to tell you the truth and let you make up your mind about what you're reading. I love your optimism, your visionary thinking, your visionary philosophy, and we're gonna get into that in a little bit more. It's, I know it's in your book, but having gone through what you went through and seen all you've seen, to have you still talking about it in that you know, bright light on the shining hill, our country has not seen its best days yet, uh, is heartwarming. So I, I appreciate those insights. Let's get back to your career. You were raised in Philadelphia, how did you end up all the way across country at the University of Portland? That's a oh, long way from Philly. This, now, this is a good, this is really a good part of the book. Um, I was, I was actually being recruited by Red Auerbach. And Red Auerbach wanted me to go to St. Anselm's, Duquesne, or Seton Hall. Good Catholic schools, all Northeastern. And, and he and Haskell Cohen, uh, who was the publicity director for the NBA, were trying to help me get into those schools. And I, there was something there. I just couldn't make that commitment. Um, Big House Gaines wanted me to come down to Winston-Salem in North Carolina. And he told me, he said, you pack your bags and you be on the corner after the pen relays tomorrow. This is an <laughs> <laughs> he said, after the pin relays tomorrow, and if you're on that corner, we'll pick you up and we'll take you back to Winston. And if you're not, I know you chose not to go. Well, I was not because I was still being recruited. I, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand on the street corner with luggage in South Philly. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not a good sign. So big house drove back to, to North Carolina, to Winston-Salem. I stayed home and I got a phone call from a coach at the University of Portland in Oregon. And he said, my name is Al Negrati <clears throat> and I'd like to uh, come and see you and see if you'd like to come to our school in Portland, Oregon. And you know, I, was, I, I laughed, I said, if I'm not gonna go to school in Oklahoma, if I'm not gonna go to school in Illinois, I'm certainly not gonna go to school in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> this gentleman who's six foot three, built like a bear, big man, comes to our house uh, he said, I'd like to come and visit with you and your family. He comes to the house. He gets in my living room, Chris, 
And it's like we got Sammy Davis Jr. in there. He's got everybody laughing. <laughs> I mean, the guy, he worked the room like he was Sammy Davis. He's telling jokes. He's, he's personable. And then he, when he dropped the bomb, he said, and University of Portland is a Catholic school. And we're affiliated with Notre Dame. Notre Dame? Yeah, we're affiliated with Notre Dame. That's where the priests who, when they go from Notre Dame to retire, they come and teach their last few years at the University of Portland. Well, my mother, who's Catholic Catholic, I mean, I'm talking makes novenas, you know, I mean, my mom goes, really? Oh, and I knew I was something. <laughs> I was something. <laughs> and I said, oh. And so the next morning, talk about the suitcase on the corner. When Coach Negrati comes to pick me up the next morning, and remember, that means he had his answer before he left our living room that night. I was packing my bags that night. I was on the next thing smoking. I didn't fly. I was afraid to fly uh, in, in 1957, 58. And so I got him to agree to take me across country by train. And so he has me at my front door and we're getting in a cab to go to the train station, to go to Pittsburgh, Chicago. In Chicago, we get off the train and we get on the City of Roses. And the City of Roses, leaving Chicago, is a two-day trip to the, to the West Coast, north. Then they had the City of Los Angeles, that went south. Route 66 in the north, going across through the Rockies. So my first big train trip was through the Rockies. And I, I was amazed, sitting I was sitting up. And of course, Coach Negrati kept trying to get me to get off the train to take a flight. He said, we could be in Oregon in two hours. And I said, no, nah, I'm going to stick it out. But I, I, I lived the dream. I lived the dream. Went to Portland and really never looked back other than dropping out because I did decide, if I'm going to be this far away from home and I'm going to work, I, I'm going to go back home and go to work. So I dropped out, but it was one. Of, it was some of the most beautiful, beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. And so I, that's how I got to the University of Portland in Oregon through Al, and then parentheses Sammy Davis Jr. Right. <laughs> Via Notre Dame. That's right. You were selected as the number four overall pick in the 1961 draft. Obviously, being chosen that high up, you knew you were going to be drafted. But were there any surprises that ex you experienced during that first year, or did things go pretty much as you expected? Actually, I didn't know I was going to be drafted. Remember, I'm coming out of the Eastern League. Who knows about the Eastern League? So I'm not sure. And uh, the way I found out, Chris, is I'm on my way. I go from Philadelphia to New York, and I'm going up to the Bronx to play a basketball game, a basketball tournament. And so I get on the subway, I get off, the, get off the train, get on the subway, I'm going uptown. And as I change trains at uh, 125th Street, I said, oh, I'll get a newspaper. Because in those days, you bought newspapers in New York all day long. Morning paper, afternoon paper, evening paper. So I think I got the afternoon or evening paper. I don't, maybe, I, I, th I think it was the New York Post, if memory serves. I'm going uptown, and I said, well, let me see who's in the draft. 
they had the draft today. Because, you know, in those days, there was no pomp and circumstance to the draft. No ESPN. Remember, I'm on a train, and I'm looking to see if I was drafted on the train. So I'm going to the newspaper, and I said, oh, okay, here's the draft. And it was kind of started out and gives a synopsis on each player. And I said, oh, okay, we'll go along. So Walt Bellamy was taken from Indiana by the Chicago Bulls. That went meant the NBA went from eight teams to nine teams. So Walt Bellamy was selected. Indiana All-American, 6'10", great player. The second player pick, it was not made. It was Tom Stiff from St. Bonaventure, New York. And he was drafted by the New York Knicks. Synopsis on, on the Tom Stiff. Great All-American, great player. Third player pick, oh, well, that's not me. That, that says Larry Siegfried. So Larry Siegfried is a third player pick. He played with Havlicek, Jerry Lucas on that great team at Ohio State. And he was drafted number one by Cincinnati. So the next team is the Detroit Pistons. Now, Earl Lloyd told me, <clears throat> excuse me, when he visited me, he said, we're going we're gonna to draft you. Well, everybody says we're going to draft you. So I said, okay, let me see who the Pistons pick. And it said, Ray Scott. University of Portland. I let out such a scream on the train. Everybody jumped. And so when everybody jumped, they turned around to see who had screamed. And I'm a pretty sharp kid from South Philly. I was turning around looking too. I was <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I found out that I was the number four player picked in America. Now think of the pomp and circumstance you see today. Where I had number four player picked and they'd start talking about money. There'd be a couple of beautiful women escorting me up to the stage. I'd have on a suit that either was one size too large or one size too small. <laughs> and I'd have on this, this baseball cap and I would be with the commissioner. No commissioner, no suit, no women, nothing. I'm on the subway screaming. <laughs> so that's how I found out that I was the number four player picked in America, but it was a great journey uh, going to Detroit because I wasn't, I, it, it's no different than any place else I would have been. No one would have known anywhere I went. So I, I, but I picked Detroit and the great thing about coming to Detroit is they had a lifestyle here that I relish even to this day. And it is based on the, we're the beneficiaries of what unions have done in America. And that's that's Detroit, Michigan, because of the big three in the automobile industry. Well, I know you talked about the difference between, between your draft and the draft today, but the good news for you is, I know from our pre-dial-in that you've got a beautiful woman next to you, so you, it worked out okay for you. Hey, that's this is where I found her. This is, we have beautiful daughters. We have, I think, a beautiful home. Uh, it, it couldn't have been better. It couldn't have been better. Uh, things worked out. Uh, but things were, you know, like I said, between 22 and 30, uh, I was married and divorced and the whole, you know, schmear of trying to straighten your life, trying to straighten out your personal life as a kid and yet trying to be a man and an athlete. So there's a, there's a lot of growing up in there. Uh, and that's what I describe in the book. And my view was not only inward at trying to straighten myself out. And, and, and become a, a good citizen of America. But my view was of America itself. And that's why 
uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Dr. King and Malcolm X and Rosa Parks. These are very, very important people, the, the mayor of, uh, of Detroit. And like I said, this is over really a 20 year span that this growth takes place. So let's stick with the draft for a minute, but a different kind of draft. You received a draft notice from Uncle Sam. Obviously, as the Vietnam War was ramping up, but you were rejected for service. Now, I've heard the old army saying there are no atheists in foxholes, but I didn't know the one. There are no six foot nine guys in foxholes either. I love your story about that experience, and I know our audience will too. Can you please share it with us and the story of your brother as well? Yes. Well, first of all, in our family, then let me, I, I, this has to be up close and personal. In our family, the hero in our family is my baby brother because he was in Vietnam with the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in the air. Until you've experienced that, you have no idea what it's all about. He did that. And he is a hero to me. He's my, my younger brother by six years. We are born on the same day. We're both 6'12". I'm 6'12", 38. Uh, he's uh, 6'12", 46. 44, I beg your pardon. So we're six years apart. But that little twin guy, that five foot, 10 inch man, <laughs> toughest guy I know. He's the toughest guy I know. However, I almost had that experience at six foot nine uh, in Vietnam uh, because I was, unlike him, unlike my brother Marvin, who was, who was not drafted, but volunteered, not only for the military, but volunteered for Vietnam. I have no idea what's in between his ears, but this kid did that. I, on the other hand, the six foot nine inch one was drafted. And I was like, are you kidding, mom? She said, no, here's your papers. And this is where they tell you to report. Now in that report is you are to bring your kit. Your kit has your toothpaste, your hairbrush, your, your toothbrush, your stuff in it. You, you bring that kit. And your parents won't see you until you get out of basic training. So I said, well, I'll go down here uh, to this ominous looking building. And I walked up the stairs in this building and I had started out in Catholic school. And one of the, my favorite people in Catholic school was a kid that was in a wheelchair and his name was Al Bernaviches. And I remembered Al because Al was a Big, big, big Carl Braun, the New York Knicks guard. That he was a fan of Carl. We just sitting, and I had somebody to sit with in class and talk about basketball, the NBA. So Al was my guy. We every morning we just sit and talk about basketball. And I hadn't seen Al for years. We both, I guess, I went back to school. Then I left Catholic school, went to public school, West Philly, and I hadn't seen Al. So now that I'm drafted, I'm going into this building, this ominous gray building, and all these kids are going in. And I get inside, and they said, you, what's your last name? I said, Scott, and blah, blah, blah. They said, well, you go over there into that room. And I walk over into that room, Chris. And when I walk into the room, as I told you last week, I see a wheelchair. And I look in the wheelchair. And it was my friend from the wheelchair that I went to high school with, Al Bernavichis. And I said, oh my God, I'm in. If they're, 
if they're drafting guys in wheelchairs, I'm done. Because I was hoping that they would say to me, because you're 6'9", you're going to be, you know, we're going to expunge you from the roles. You're going to be taken out of the draft. And so I go over to Sarge. I said, Sarge, I just wanted to say something. You know, I'm 6'9", I'm, I'm and uh, uh, I'm going into the NBA. And uh, he said, no. He said, you see that major over there? And I said, I looked at I said, yeah. He said, he's 6'8". So now I got Al on the one side of me and the major is 6'8". I got no chance. No shot. I got no shot. So it's like, you know, you're, you're there like at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. So we go through the day of doing all the testing and stuff that we do. And I'm going through this and I'm going, like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And a sergeant comes over to me and says, come here. And he just said it just like this. He said, you're out of here. I'm out of here. You're out of here. And I was like, I didn't take five seconds to get out of there. I go outside of this building. And when I walk outside in the street, where you're used to coming out of a building and on the street, there's all kinds of traffic, foot traffic and people. I walked out of this building, there was no one. But the person that I was looking for was Al Bertovicius. I wanted to see if they sent Al home. I never saw Al, I've never seen him again, but I, I want Al to know that he gave me comfort and he gave me hope if he ever sees this podcast. But that was, uh, that was my introduction to the military. And that was mine, but my brother's was the common. And that guy, he did it. He, he carried the banner for the Scott family. And he's, 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 he's a wonderful tale, in my opinion, in our family lore. I love it. So we often hear of, and think of Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball, when we think of integration in sports, mm-hmm. you touched earlier about 1947 to 1950, how it became integrated. And I think that really sets the tone for this. How is the NBA stacked up as a role model, or even to your point, a pace setter on race relations compared to other leagues? Mm, I think we have to take pace setter out of it. Um, but I, 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 a part of me wants to say that it wasn't just the NBA. I think some of the, some of the things that happened during that period, this period of integration, there are important people that we don't talk about. Uh, one of those people to me was Bear Bryant. Because the bear was the guy that said in Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi, we have to integrate. And people were going, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? You're crazy? We're not going to play with those people. We don't want them on our team. The bear said, no, we have to have them. But I'm, let me show you something. So what the bear did that was absolutely brilliant, the bear brought in USC to Alabama to play against the Alabama Crimson Red the tide and the USC Trojans ran up and down that field in Alabama like they owned it with a guy named Sam Bam Cunningham. And what the bear said, now guys, you understand this kid Bam Cunningham is from Alabama. 
Why are we letting our treasured kids out of this state to go to California, to go to Pennsylvania, to go to Michigan? <clears throat> and we and they lived, they grew up and lived here. They should be at Alabama. And he told Governor Wallace, I want to recruit these kids. And the alumni, after witnessing that game, backed not Governor Wallace. <laughs> they backed the bear. And so from the other side of the street with Dr. King and Malcolm X and these great civil rights leaders was the bear. And I believe that push is what pushed America forward as did John Fitzgerald Kennedy. See, it was men that demonstrated the courage of leadership and conviction that moved this country forward. And that's why I still have that belief in America today, because of the existence that men I saw during the 60s that moved the nation forward. Courage of leadership and conviction. Yes. I love that. And I hate to tell you and your wife as well, I think that's the title of your next book. <laughs> I got you a winter project here. <laughs> I never knew that about Bear Bryant. Yes. And I don't think he's really mentioned in terms of being part of that whole movement. That's right. And so I really, really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners and viewers. Because I think that's clearly a very important part of that era. And to your point right there about USC versus uh, Bama, yeah. look at college sports today, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. Early in the conversation, you mentioned Red Auerbach. And for those people who've had their heads in foxholes or wherever and don't follow the NBA, Red Auerbach was a legendary NBA coach with the Boston Celtics from 1950 to 1966 when segregation really dictated race relations in the U.S. He's also an instrumental figure in Boston's very complicated history of racial justice. You knew Red Auerbach, as you mentioned. What did he do to advance the careers and success of Black athletes? Good question. Good question. Because Red Auerbach technically drafted two players to his team in different times. He drafted Earl Lloyd with Washington when Earl Lloyd first came in to the NBA. He would have been the coach. After seven games, Earl Lloyd went into the military. The Boston Celtics drafted Mr. Brown up in Boston, drafted Chuck Cooper. Red got the coach, Chuck Cooper, Don Barksdale, very, very good players. Uh, adding, adding players to his team that he thought would make them a championship team. Red drafted, but not drafted Bill Russell, but traded for Bill Russell because Russell wasn't welcomed with open arms in St. Louis, where he was drafted, after coming out an Olympic gold medal year. He won the gold medal in 1956. And Russell was supposed to go to St. Louis. And they said, now we'll trade. So Auerbach said, we'll trade Easy Ed McCauley, 
the center that Russell was going to replace. And we'll give you, we'll even throw in Cliff Hagan from Kentucky, All-American. You get two players, we get Russell. Russell goes to Boston. The rest is history. The rest is history. Red, who had an eye for talent. I, I have never stopped saying that Red, John McClendon, and Big House gains in a fashion, but John McClendon, because I saw his teams, Red Auerbach and John McClendon are probably two of the best coaches I've ever seen in my life. Because they took basketball from a staid slowdown game to an up-tempo, quick speed game, which makes it great for people to see these people as professionals. So Red drafts Russell, he drafts Casey Jones. He drafts Sam Jones. Now, remember, when he's drafting these guys, he's got Hall of Famers already playing for him. Bob Cousy, Bill Sharman, Tommy Heinsohn, <clears throat> uh, Jim Luskatov, Bill, you know, Bill Russell. He's got a great team. But he's, he's saying, oh, no, this is the coming game. Speed and quickness. Speed and quickness. So he puts this team together. And so going forward in the 60s, as he's coming up to 66, someone said in 63, Tommy Heinsohn's hurt. Who are we going to start? Are we going to start Havlicek? Which leaves us with at least, because Kuzi and Sharman are gone, it's going to leave us with at least one white player starting on the team. And just like Bear Bryant, Red Auerbach said, no, we're going to start Willie Knowles. We got him from the New York Knicks. He's a great player. He's a great shooter. I want a shooter at that position. I want Havlicek in the role that he's in coming off the bench. He buttresses that second, that second quarter, and I'm not taking that away. Now, this is courageous because most people would have gone completely. The other. He said, no. So what does that mean? We're playing in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're going to start five African-American players. That's Red Auerbach. 1963, 64, whatever the time it is. Never blinked an eye. He said, Red, how could you do that? He said, well, uh, that's my strategy. That's what I want. I want my team to win. And Red drafted players from not only HBCU, the, the African-American schools, but he picked up free agents. Red was a leader in what he did. But the guys that I have to, that I've in my book tried to give credit to is Marty Blake, who was in St. Louis. And the reason I mentioned Marty Blake, Chris, and it's, uh, you have to give the man his due. Marty Blake in St. Louis, where we could not even eat in the restaurants. We could, as African-Americans, we couldn't eat in the restaurants. Marty Blake put six African-American kids on his team. Bill Bridges, Zelmo Beatty, Paul Silas, Chico Vaughn, John Barnhill, and a kid by the, from San Francisco by the name of Fred LaCour. That's six players. So is it any wonder that the St. Louis Hawks were moved from St. Louis to Atlanta? They were not going to have that ever again in St. Louis. And that's when they moved the hockey team in, the St. Louis Blues. And they became the king 
of the indoor sports, the St. Louis Blues. They moved the Atlanta Hawks. And that was done through Marty Blake. The other guy, I'll give you another, there's another man, because you got it again to do. Red Holtzman with the New York Knicks. Red Holtzman brought in a kid from, everybody said, oh, he went to a black school, he can't play. And Red Alback said, I mean, the Red Holtzman said, this kid can play. His name was Willis Reed. Willis Reed from Grambling University. People didn't even know where Grambling was. Everybody knows who Willis Reed is now, right? Put the kid on the floor. He traded an all-pro center by the name of Walt Bellamy to put Willis Reed in the center position. Drafted a kid named uh, Jim Bad News Barnes from Texas Western. Billy the Hill McGill from Utah. These African-American kids coming into the NBA all of a sudden. And then they did, the Knicks did the PS de Resistance was to bring in Bill Bradley, who was coming back from Oxford. He signed Bill Bradley along with Cassie Russell. Think of this team coming together. This is like unbelievable. And he trains Walt Bellamy for Dave DeBusher. So he's got Dave DeBusher, Bill Bradley, Willis Reed. They get a kid out of Southern Illinois that no one's heard about named Walt Frazier. They call him Clyde now. Everybody knows about it now. And a guy named Dick Barnett from the HBCU. And so I was always proud of these gentlemen when I looked at the moves that they made to build their teams. They got away from that. We're only going to do it through all Americans. No, like Red Auerbach, they were going to do it through great players. And in my opinion, that's what changed the NBA. So that as that, it took time for that to grow, Chris. As that was growing, all of a sudden there's two kids being developed in this country that are going to lead the NBA onwards and upwards. And those two kids are Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And that was a marriage made in heaven. I believe that's the blessing for being an open league. I believe that's the blessing that the NBA got in those two kids because those two kids brought what with them? America. One in Boston, one in Los Angeles, a natural, a natural. And that was seeing that time was just, it was so beautiful. I remember getting a speeding ticket a speed, to drive home so I could see the Lakers and the Boston Celtics. And I, I said, officer, if you could give me that ticket in a hurry, I'm, I'm really in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're that, that, the league was growing. You're giving me a flashback. So I'm from upstate New York and my best friend as a kid was a Celtics fan. I was a Lakers fan. And so it worked out perfectly that our last week of school every year was they were half days. And so we could watch the Lakers and Celtics and they were just special, special games. No question. No question. Change the league. No question. So now you made NBA history yourself. You were the first black man to be named coach of the year. Please tell us how you became the coach, NBA coach, and especially about the 1973-74 season with the Pistons where you were named coach of the year. That was such a special year. 
because at the outset, again, there are people that played a role into that happening. Um, the, the previous year, I was the assistant coach for seven games after retiring. And I was with my very good friend, my mentor, my brother, Earl Lloyd. And also with Bill Russell. Bill Russell was in that training camp. And I listened to those guys. Now, a lot of people don't remember, but Earl Lloyd was the first African-American champion in the NBA with the Syracuse Nationals. We all know about Russell's stories of championships. So I'm listening, I'm soaking every, every word up these guys are saying because they're both champions. And what I came to understand is the commitment you had to have. Well, in that first year that I was named a coach, we finished up with that team winning 20 of, out of our last 30 games. And I knew we were special. When you can do that, you're special. And I had Dave Bing, who was going to be the mayor of this city, and I had Bob Lanier. Now, if Dave Bing doesn't come in and support me in my philosophy that I had learned from listening to Russell and Earl Lloyd, if he doesn't support me, I'm done. My, my ship has sunk. But Dave did, Dave did support me. And the players brought, bought in. We come back the next year, 73, 74. And I knew that we had the ingredients to win. I just had to figure out how we were going to utilize it. We got it figured out. We, we went from 12 and 10 to 36 and 19. I'll never forget that span. It was like the happiest time of my life. I, 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 I actually felt like maybe I can coach. Um, but with those guys playing this beautiful game of basketball, now we're on the national pages. Now the Sports Illustrated is talking about the Pistons. Now the Pistons are on uh, television. And it, at that time, the playoffs were scheduled for the weekends. Then they started televising the games during the week. So it was like this explosion in professional basketball. But at the end of the day, through all of these people have poured into me, I'm standing at midcourt getting ready to go against the Chicago Bulls in a playoff game, but I'm getting this huge trophy for being coach of the year. And I'm standing there trying to figure out why. I'm a kid from a third floor walk up in Philadelphia. How do you get to be coach of the year? And so I'm thinking about that. And I remember Cy Gordine, the deputy commissioner, saying to me, do you have anything you'd like to say? And I said, no, I was mute. I was just so taken in by the moment. And then we went out and beat the Chicago Bulls. That made it a great, great day. Um, but the, that was the Pistons' entrance into the big time, witnessing what the big time was like. And that was something I really wanted to happen because I had been there when we were drawing 1,500, 2,000 people a game. Now we're getting 10, 11,000 people a game. That was a big thing for us. Uh, until the bad boys, we, didn't, we lost that momentum. And we lost the momentum in that period because what happens is greed steps in. Instead of seeing the championship flag like the coaches that we've talked about, Bear Bryant, uh, uh, McClendon, 
our back. Instead of seeing that as the goal, the goal becomes to make money. Once your goal is money, you don't have, you don't have a chance, in my opinion. You have to have something that everyone on the team, everyone in the organization rallies around. And that's, that's what I believe. And, and we lost that. And I wound up uh, coaching at the University of Eastern Michigan. And a lot of people say, well, man, what a step down. And I said, no, it's the greatest years of my life. You know why? I won the big one. I got Jennifer. Well said. Perfect. That's, that's how you close the show on that one. Ray, we're just about out of time here, but I just want to highlight, again, trying to move your book up from 1941 to the top 10 on, on both platforms. You dedicate your book to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all the other grandchildren, great-grandchildren in our country because they will have, quote, the power to transform this great experiment that's called the United States of America into a more perfect union. I'm going to use your quote now, courage of leadership and conviction. You're part of that Mount Rushmore from that movement. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. It has been an absolute honor and pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And thanks so much. No, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's great. I, I've enjoyed this so much. If ever, you know, you can't get a guest and you just say, I need a guy. <laughs> well, you blew my notes to hell because I only went through about not even a third of my questions. So you have to come back. Okay. All right. I, I will. And thanks so much for our listeners for being with us today and tuning in this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. And be sure to pick up a copy of Ray Scott's book, The NBA in Black and White on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all leading booksellers. Again, we're trying to crack that top 10. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.